ready for the champagne room call-in segment. Oh, that's going to be exciting. That's going to be really, I think it's going to be crazier than the show. Yeah. Did you read the questions Pascal wrote? <gasps> no, I didn't. Jesus Christ. And you're the producer. Soups. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are we paying you all the big bucks if this is, if this is what we're getting? Big bucks. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. So glad to have you guys with us here uh, for what should be a very interesting conversation with Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant. Before we start, if you're new to the channel and you're enjoying what you see, please hit like, subscribe, and don't forget to hit that notifications bell as we are constantly adding new shows and cross streams with other channels. Speaking of new shows, we had another installment of our White Guy Wednesday. With Deep State Cuba, Mean Jean Bajalan, and the C. Derek Varn, uh, the guys got into a deep dive discussion about nationalism. It's up, and I'm sure MT and the Mons will post some links in the chat and in the comments so you guys can check that out. For those of you that are subscribers and patrons, thank you for your continued support. That is the fuel in the TIR machine. If you listeners would like access to the champagne rooms, past and present, be part of the live audience for the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert, and of course, the TIR Movie Nights. There's only one way to become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 a year. It can all be yours. Also, before I bring in Pascal and our esteemed guests, I want to do a few quick shout-outs. First off, happy birthday to my brother and sister. I'm not going to say how old they are. I'm not even going to say their names. Well, I will say their names. Rusty and Rachel. Happy birthday, Rusty and Rachel. And coincidentally, they live in the Seattle area. <gasps> Just like our guest. Is that legal? <laughs> <laughs> they are the black neighborhood. Okay. And my sister has children, and she's just making it blacker, biggerer, and blackerer. And speaking of blackerer, 
for those of you that are fans of the show that's watched it for a while, you may know my best friend in the world who comes on here, coach or one of the coaches of the Oakland High basketball team, made it to the state finals. The state championship game. Big, huge, massive shout out to Coach Will and the Oakland High Wildcats. They'll be representing the town in the state basketball championships this Friday. Will has been coaching Tucson for like 30 years. Wow. He was coaching in school. He coached the junior high when we were when we were in high school. That's a lot of Gatorade being dumped on him. <laughs> well, finally, he can enjoy possibly. I'm, I'm really hoping that they can win. I'm so hurt that I can't make the trip up to Sacramento to watch the game tomorrow. Um, Coach Will in Orlando, it's been amazing to see what you guys have been able to do. Even the strength and conditioning coach, uh, Coach uh, Coach Mass, helped me out actually at the uh, at the homeless shelter during during the lockdown, during the shelter in places. So uh, wonderful, wonderful people. They're doing an amazing job um, with the with the kids they have there at, um, at Oakland High. Um, not just from an athletic level, but definitely from uh, an educational standpoint. Um, so with that all being said, let's bring in the TIR crew. She is the voice that you hear, the faceless voice of reason, M. Tucson. Hello, hello. That would be me. And my homie, my dog, Amelo, my man. The man of the Mau Mau Hour, also a big basketball fan. Was Pascal a basketball player or a football player in high school? What do you think, Tucson? I'm going to say basketball. You're going to say basketball because he's from New York? Is that why? Just because he's black. Ah. <laughs> can't forget racism. Please welcome <laughs> the Pascal Robert. Oh, shit. There he is. Talk about racism. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sun. You playing sick, playing stickball? No, nah, man. I used to lift weights. I did not play football or basketball. You just lifted weights? I was just totally selfish, self-indulgent, lifting weights, trying to get buffed for the ladies. Wow. Ladies. <laughs> that's that's all it was about for you and from 85 to, to 94? Um, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that is Pascal, keeping it real, Robert. Our guest and current city council member of District 3, Shama Sawant, is stepping down from the electoral realm of politics after an almost three, was it, uh, she had a th- uh, almost 10-year run in office. She held off attacks from the right and the Democratic Party for her seat most recently in 2021, where we had someone from her organization, Socialist Alternative, on the show to speak about the recall and raise money to prevent her from losing her seat. Well, the time is coming to an end, but she's not retiring from the fight for the working class. Swan's new Workers Strike Back Party is going to, quote, rebuild the class struggle in America. Please welcome City Council Member of District 3. Shama Sawant. How are you? Good, how are you? Also, Shama brought, she brought the crew. She brought Posse with her. 
<laughs> he is also a part of the Worker Strike Back Party, and he is the president of the Black Caucus of Socialist Alternative. I lied. You're not the president. Well, you are today, Ryan. <laughs> he just got a promotion. Is, is the is the socialist alternative? I can see Ryan in the virtual green room. Is the socialist alternative like the Nation of Islam? Will there be someone knocking at my door to break my legs? No, okay, well then you're the president, Ryan Watson. <laughs> <laughs> now Pascal has been excited for this episode since we got um, a very kind email from you guys. Um, reaching out and it's taken a while for us to get the dates for this show. Um, yeah. We initially wanted to get you guys on a little bit earlier when everything was first launching. We have you here now. And I know Pascal Robert has some questions for you. Absolutely. Councilwoman Shawan, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. This is the second time we've had you on and I appreciate you taking the time to come out and uh, speak to us. One of the things that I actually wanted to ask you about, one of your most uh, successful initiatives, is about your getting uh, the city of Seattle to outlaw discrimination based on caste. And uh, I found that very fascinating, how such a culturally significant phenomenon within the Indian subculture was able to be translated to municipal politics in Seattle. Can you talk about the importance of that initiative? What was your role in it and why you felt it was so significant and important in actually getting implemented in Seattle? Yeah, the reason it is so significant, I'm really glad you're asking about that, Pascal. And I, in fact, that's the almost entire reason why it took us so long to have this date schedule is because there was this almighty struggle to win this ordinance. And um, the reason it's significant is because when we won this ordinance on February 21st, you know, this law, new law banning caste discrimination in Seattle, we made Seattle the first ever jurisdiction of any level anywhere in the world outside South Asia to have done this, to have banned caste discrimination. So this is extraordinarily historic. In fact, we, we know that it has electrified perhaps millions across the world. Uh, you know, we, we're getting emails from people all around the United States and, uh, and globally, and especially my home country, India, because this is, a, this is a, a victory that is of incredible significance, not only for people who hail from oppressed caste communities, but for people who want to deliver a blow to oppression in our society, which oppression, which is endemic under capitalism and to the right wing. And in fact, the, the other aspect of why this was so phenomenal as a victory is because in order to win it, it required us, meaning my office, Socialist Alternative, the movement that we built around this issue to have to go up against and defeat the right wing, especially the right wing that is associated with the far right and reactionary regime of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party. So this was, you know, straight up a fight against the right wing, and it has delivered an offensive victory against the Hindu right wing at a time when the reactionary politics and the fundamentalist ideology of 
the BJP in India has been on the ascendancy. You know, Modi has been the prime minister for eight years now, and there's a fomenting of caste-based violence, also Islamophobia in in India is similar, you know, similar to the kind of ideology that Trump and right populism have in the context of the United States. And so it required us to defeat them. And also keep in mind that there are eight Democrats on the city council. I am one socialist or Marxist. And so it also required us to force the Democratic Party to concede and vote yes on this, which is not something that they wanted to do. You know, the Democrats at best are extremely, extremely reluctant to support anything meaningfully progressive, you know, not, not something symbolic, but something actually meaningful. And uh, and so you have to go up against them as well. And in fact, at, at one point, we even heard some of the so-called progressive Democrats even repeating some of the right-wing talking points. So the only way we were able to defeat all of these forces arrayed against us to win this historic victory was because we built a united movement working class movement across caste and religion and even even you know american working people uh, alongside us thousands of american working people in seattle signed our petition as well that's that's incredible i really applaud you on that effort and i'm glad to see that it turned out to be one that brought brought fruits that were so positive so you have served as an elected official in seattle since 2014 and have not and decided to forego uh, your elected uh, position in the future does this reflect a belief that the ele that electoral politics even on the local level is a dead end for leftists progressive progressives and radicals what we have shown in seattle is how it is actually possible to not only run a genuine 100% pro-working class fighting campaign, win office, and then how to use that office in service of the working class. And as um, you all were mentioning earlier, we have uh, we have won four elections in Seattle now after having, you know, including our first election to city council in 2013. And we have won those elections despite everything thrown against us, all the might of big business, including million, millions of dollars from Amazon and Jeff Bezos themselves, the Democratic Party being arrayed against us. In fact, in 2019, when we were running our third election, we literally had two of the so-called self-described progressive Latina Democratic Council members in Seattle running a candidate against me because they uh, they don't support the kind of uh, pro-working class and unabashedly fighting agenda that our office has brought forward, that Socialist Alternative has brought forward by building movements. And I don't think we can just, um, I don't think we can have a black and white answer of, oh, well, electoral politics works or doesn't work, uh, or we have street politics works or doesn't work. I think uh, uh, we have to understand that electoral politics is not the most favorable terrain for the working class precisely because that is the terrain at which the bosses parties work you know democrats and republicans so it is indeed there's a there's a there's a grain of truth in what you're what you in the way you pose the question that yes we we really need to build rank and file worker power by building the rebuilding the proud militant American labor movement and also building for social movements that can win massive victories, you know, victories commensurate with the size of the street protests that we are, I think we're, we've already seen. At the same time, we've also shown 
by the near decade that we have served on the city council, not only winning four elections, but also winning unheard of, unprecedented victories, like making Seattle the first major city to win the $15 minimum wage, like winning the historic Amazon tax to fund uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, affordable housing, publicly owned affordable housing in Seattle, where the cost of housing has gone out of control. We have won a series of renters' rights that were thought of as completely impossible to win because of the strength of the corporate landlord lobby and the Democratic Party by their side. So I think what we need to understand is it is possible to run electoral campaigns and win on the basis that we have done. But we are unfortunately the rare, rare exception to the rule. We have not seen this. We have seen sellout after sellout, betrayal after betrayal by the supposed by those politicians who were supposedly on our side, the squad, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Bernie Sanders, unfortunately. And so the the, the thinking behind the launch of Worker Strike Back, which is not a new party, it's Worker Strike Back is calling for a new party. But what the strike back aims to be a nationwide movement of working people that we have now launched. By launching that, what we want to do is take the ideas that we have put into action and proven beyond a shadow of doubt that these ideas, this fighting strategy works. We want to take those ideas on a national level and really help to rebuild rank and file power and also, you know, just the, the bring that fighting strategy to bigger, to a bigger stage to in order to win victories like a $30 an hour minimum wage. We want to fight to win Medicare for all. We also want to fight oppression. That's why, you know, Ryan Watson is here from Socialist Alternative because, you know, we take the fight against racism and sexism extremely seriously as socialists. I wanted to ask you one of the questions about some of the rent protections that you were able to get passed in your time in office, because I think uh, before we pivot to a more federal talk, I do want to talk about things at a local level because there's some of these rent protections that, from my understanding, and I could be wrong, uh, where you, you were part of getting the uh, the line on a rent application removed that said, have you been convicted of a felony? It, yes, it was. I mean, we, we that was actually one of the rare instances where actually the one of the Democrats wanted to bring this forward as well. Uh-huh. And so it was a very important step forward, absolutely. That that's I'd like to hear how you were able. I know you said one of the Democrats wanted to do it as well, but that's you know really one of those sticky positions for a lot of people because they feel like there's always backlash. There's always a story about well, because of that, someone moved into Unit X and this person got attacked. Ergo, that's why we need to know people convict could, are convicted of certain felonies. Um, what was your strategy? to try to get this very important bill passed because it doesn't take much to get a felony and not get an apartment. I, I honestly think it's really interesting that you're asking this question because I honestly think the answer to your question is some, something interesting here in the sense that if you actually look at the trajectory of how we won many of the other rent, uh, victories for renter, you know, renters' rights, they were actually a much bigger fight than the one you're talking about. And I think the reason is that because we have built momentum around renters' rights by winning some major victories, it actually paved the way for the one you're talking about. And and interestingly and fascinatingly, we actually did not have the kind of opposition for corporate landlords for the one you're mentioning as we had for other victories because 
Um, just just to give you an example, you know, we 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 won the law to mandate that landlords should give renters six months notice for any rent increase. We we won a law that says there cannot be any evictions in the winter months. You know, ban on uh, that, winter, yeah. winter evictions, moratorium on evictions. Yeah. We won another law that says, and a very strong version of the law. There's a version of this law in somewhere in California, but we want a stronger law that says no evictions can happen for school children and public school workers during the school year months. Mm -hmm. And we want a law that says landlords cannot increase rents if they have outstanding housing code violations. You know, if you file a complaint and they've not fixed your stove or heating or something like that, but they have the temerity to increase your rent, then that's now illegal in Seattle. We also want a very strong law which says that if your landlord raised your rent more than 10% and that forced you out of your apartment, you, you, in other words, you were economically evicted because of a rent increase, then your landlord owes you three months rent. So the truth is that the fight that we had to conduct for these other renters' rights where it's very clear that the corporate landlord's profits were directly on the line, that's where we felt the massive opposition. And we also observed that the Democrats were absolutely not on our side for any of those other laws. And it's interesting that this was the one that you're talking about was one of the rare exceptions where they were actually willing to stick their necks out. But it, it was partly, as I said, on the momentum of the other laws that we were winning and partly because they were willing to take that on because that was it was clear that it didn't directly pose a threat to the bottom line of the corporate landlords. And so it's interesting to see how the dynamics work, you know, what really generates massive opposition or not. And I don't think that from what I'm saying, we can draw the conclusion that somehow society under American capitalism is in any way favorable to people who have felt you know, absolutely not. You know, we, we have seen the brutality of the American criminal justice system and the judicial system. And we have no illusions about how um, how uh, inhumane it has been and continues to be, and which is why Ryan and I are socialists. But my point is that it also shows you which kind of uh, battles you end up needing to pick and which kind of battle actually bring unity. And you know, the, the truth is that we have been able to build some really you know, life struggles bringing renters and working people and union members together to win any of these renters right without without which we would not have won in fact just to you know just one last thing i want to add on the question of renters rights is you know sometimes the political enemies of the working class pay you the best compliments because they recognize who's the real enemy you know so if you look at the uh, the the capitalist class the corporate landlord lobby the billionaires they know what they should really fear, what they should really fear is united movements of the working class. And that's what our office has represented. And so one of the corporate landlord lobbyists who just happens to be also the brother of a former corporate mayor, she was the mayor during BLM in 2020. He said this, um, this uh, landlord lobbyist said that uh, something along the lines of every dollar that the corporate lobby spent on city hall was wasted because of Sawant's army and what they meant was the movement that we brought to City Hall <coughs> to fight for renters' rights and when. Mm -hmm. Well, let's speak to one of the soldiers in the Sawant's army. Um, he is president of <laughs> Black people in uh, Chicago. 
<laughs> That's a hell of a title because Chicago is pretty black. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> not, Ryan, not the- <laughs> it's 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 a it's a little blacker in Seattle, but that's not the point. It's not the point. Ryan, how did you get involved with uh, socialist alternative first and foremost? Um, I mean, I came to socialist conclusions um, from Black liberation struggle. Like you know, like I, I just seen it was coming up. Fannie Lou Hamer, it was, it was coming up. Uh, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, like, you know, you have to actually research this because obviously I think Spike Lee intentionally left off the kind of like socialist last year of where um, uh, um, Malcolm X was like heading, you know, kind of the sloganeering of saying like, um, don't, don't, uh, I don't want to misappropriate or miss analysis that uh, the struggle for black liberation is not just for black people, but like, it's actually for the oppressed versus the oppressors. Like, you know, conclusions that we're saying, like, uh, if you, if you find someone who's not racist, usually they have a socialist kind of analysis. Like these, these type of things are lost in that movie. And I mean, the, at least the movie points you in a direction, but you definitely got to go read his book. Um, but like those type of directions were coming out clearly. And so, you know, I'm making up these arguments. I'm, hypercritical of Obama, you know, at this time, 2010, I just was like, I'm never voting for a Democrat again. Um, you know, he, he signed the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, I think that was on either, I think it was on uh, New Year's Eve, you know, mm-hmm. um, read that it basically was an extension of the, the, the Patriot Act and kind of stepping on like people's toes, you know, American, like who were critical, and I was just like, yeah, the two-party system isn't for me um, anymore. And honestly, I was uh, I was more of a uh, vote for no one, don't vote, don't vote for no one because no one cares. Mm-hmm. But the whole historical analysis that I run into of you know people always saying, oh, you have to vote because of the like the role of our ancestors and whatnot, which how I think it is. You, how does that? I want to ask. Uh, let me bring everybody in. Uh, there's another black person here. Oh, there he is. Pascal, you've been black for about 50 some years. How do you feel when other people try to tell you that you have to vote because your ancestors bled for your right to vote? Well, uh, you know, my ancestors bled during the Haitian Revolution, so they didn't bleed particularly. (laughs) But nonetheless, I think that the the attempt to try to leverage the Mm -hmm. suffering of ancestors for either gains or action today is both disrespectful to the individual who's alive today and disrespectful to the memory of the ancestors because you're denying them the capacity to have agency to, to, to determine what they would be doing today or not, quite frankly. You're, you're imputing what they would be telling you to do. Maybe they will be agreeing with agreeing with you and saying, none of these jokers are worth your vote. Yeah, we, we died to vote back then, but you know, maybe we thought we were right. Maybe now we think we're wrong. So it imputes. It imputes. It's all kind of, What do you it's want to say, Ryan? I'm just saying it's also unnuanced. It doesn't take into account that you know they were they were also trying to um, 
be on a jury of your peers. Like that was a part of it. You had to register to vote to be on the jury of your peers. Like also it doesn't take into account that there were, you know, to kind of connect it to the work of strike back, there were black organizations that came out of reconstruction in the reconstruction period that were drawing out the need for a new party. You know, like, like those type of things are, are, are lost. And it's just like this super easy thing. And then when I voted green in 2012, people came back to me and were like, oh, you wasted your vote. And that was like the whole reason I voted green was to kind of draw out the contradictions of what they were saying. Because like you're talking about Obama versus Romney. And, and I was like, oh, so you're basically saying I don't care who you vote for. But then one person is crap, completely crap. And one is clean crap, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so I'm like. You're, you're basically saying, oh, I don't care how you vote, but then my options are trash. And so I have to pick the lesser evilism. And then once I didn't do either of those, mm-hmm. then they then then that, that, that then their own contradiction kind of came up to the to to the to the, the notion. I, I voted for Jill Stein as a protest vote, clearly. Mm-hmm. And then when you know, then when I saw Shama 2013, mm-hmm. I had already identified as a socialist for for three years by this chance mm-hmm. and you know the winning of $15 minimum wage her critique on uh, on Obama was key like I'm seeing an elected official mm-hmm. stayed in the same points that I was just yelling on Facebook about mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and I think that was like for me like I was like yo like this is actually actionable stuff $15 minimum wage is one now we demand a 25 like that's key and mm-hmm. I think we need to build a movement. Um, you know, I also thought, you know, I'm like, Seattle's a third of Chicago, <laughs> you know, like inside. <laughs> inside. Yeah. I'm thinking like maybe they're bigger here in Chicago and I just haven't ran into them. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we got, I started meeting people here. First, it was like a conversational piece. And then next thing I'm like, oh, let's fight. And like, you know, I, I, I saw myself as socialist, didn't know what to do with that title. And then, you know, but I, I am happy that I joined in 2014 instead of like, you know, before Black Lives Matter, because the politics of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. I think, shifted some of the activist layer that mm-hmm. or the, growing, the the new activist layer that was coming into struggle to these ideas that don't work. You know, and I think that's what Worker Strike Back wants to draw out is it's not just enough to be angry, you know, that. People are angry all over the world. We see in the UK, enough is enough yeah. is um, happening. We see in France, um, pension struggles. Um, we're seeing union struggles in the US, but we can kind of look at Black Lives Matter. 20 million people in the streets. But let me, That's- let me, let's, let's interrogate this for a second. Sure. Outrage is what you're talking about, right? And it takes a lot of outrage for people to be in the streets. And the summer of 2020 doesn't happen in a vacuum. No. I found Philando Castile's murder also on the other side of the Twin Cities in St. Paul. I was talking about it with a friend today, and uh, I started tearing up again, right? The baby's in the car. The cop shoots inside because he's like, hold on, officer. Let me get my permit. Streets didn't, didn't blow up like they did. A lot of things are, there's a shelter in place. People are locked up. You have this unhinged president. And he was one of what? Four people 
there were three people I think that had gotten murdered. You had the young man Ahmad Arbery. Mm. I don't remember. I'm, I'm I'm so I feel horrible. I don't remember the woman's name in Louisville. The cops came in the, the wrong house and shot her. Um, Brianna Taylor. Brianna? Yeah. Brianna Taylor. And then finally, you have George Floyd, another snuff film that we watch. Disgusting. A lot of this, again, none of this happens in a vacuum. After the outrage, after you've burnt down the police station, you overturned a bunch of people's cars, what then happened? The police didn't get defunded. All, that energy didn't get taken up into anything electoral. I think maybe a few people actually got on some city council seats. The mayor didn't defund the police like the people were asking for. I asked this question because this outrage that we saw in mass, because we saw it everywhere, it was happening in Seattle. Definitely happened in Chicago at the time I was living in Oakland, California. It was definitely happening in the town where I'm from. Um, but who actually was able to capture that and do anything with it? Because it was outrage that was all over the place. It wasn't everybody wasn't a socialist that wanted to burn down the police station. This is a lot of people, right? Yeah. So I asked that question because you're talking about a movement and not outrage. Well, and I, I, go ahead, go ahead. I think I have an answer for that. Um, I mean, I think there's some fundamental questions that need to happen, not just in like movements and outrage that could produce changes. Because, I mean, to your point, the victories won by Black Lives Matter were not anywhere close to the promise of the, what the movement laid out. The movement demonstrated more clearly than ever that there is solidarity across race all throughout the country, you know, in some areas where like even less white people, uh, black people than Seattle, like less than 1% were, they had, you know, uh, George Floyd um, actions, you know, were entirely white, you know. But like one thing that I, I think we want to draw out about Seattle and the example of what Seattle put out is the, we, we answered the, the, the non, the fundamental questions of how, how we win and how we avoid hitting a dead end. Um, whether you're talking about Black Lives Matter, the railroad workers, it's the question of what kind of leadership is, is on offer. That's key. Um, and I wrote an article in Socialist Alternative called uh, Why the Black Liberation Movement Needs Socialist Leadership. And I'm pointing to Fred Hampton and, and, and his attempts to kind of build a rainbow coalition amongst, you know, the, the young patriots, the, you know, like... But don't Just Black work. Lives Matter? They're quote unquote uh, trained Marxists. So yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying you're I, wrong. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm. I'm going off of what they told me when they emailed me because I gave them five dollars. Well, Shama, Shama's the 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 city council seats pay a hundred and forty thousand. Is that right, Shama? Or one hundred twenty thousand? You'll be Hundred? How much? 147,000. So something. everybody watching, don't tell Ryan nothing about what you got because he's going to snitch to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but Shama takes, takes home the average worker's wage. Yeah. So this is key. You know, being able to pay for a $6 million house, mm -hmm. train Marxism, that's a contradiction. 
if you're if if you're if you call yourself a Marxist, your wage has to be tied to the people that you you represent, your constituents. Brother, if, brother Ryan, have you ever got that kind of money? Have no. you ever got <laughs> <laughs> Look, you nobody's against you making that amount of money. But if you're in a position where you represent union members, rank and file, mm -hmm. social movements, rank and file people, mm -hmm. uh, elected constituents, when you're doing stuff that is supposed to be changing society to improve a certain level, you have to be tied economically to them. Um, because you you live in a different world. If you make three times the amount of money of the people mm -hmm. you represent, mm -hmm. you don't have the same. You know, I have I have a clear example of a good friend of mine who was like, "You should just buy a car," and I'm like, "Yeah, you make three times my, my money. I can't buy a car. Like, right? like, what are you talking about?" So it's just it's a, it's a clear distinction that if you're going to represent, you know, the the people, you have to be you have to actually be tied to it, and it's no surprise. You have examples like in Nabisco, where where uh, the, the the president of the union in Portland mm -hmm. is saying no to a contract because it's trash for the rank and file because mm -hmm. they work at Nabisco and they make a small stipend. But in Chicago at Nabisco, they make six figures. They don't work at Nabisco. Their job is the union leadership. And they're voting yes. The contract is trash. You look at it, it's not surprising that these two same positions have entirely different perspectives. Well, there's the million dollar question. Black Lives Matter is just a hashtag. Sure. Right. That's why they lost. Where'd all the millions of dollars go that was getting donated to them? I don't know. Because what was the goal, right? So I, you I think, are. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, Ryan, the point that Ryan is making is. Uh, very crucial where there is um, there is a chasm between the the strength of the movement. You know, Black Lives Matter 2020 is is a great example of this. There's a chasm between the strength of the street protest movement and what the movement actually has to show for itself in terms of victories, as you all were also saying. And part of the answer is absolutely what Ryan was laying out and what you were also just suggesting right now, which is that the the the, a lot of the leaders, or I would say so-called leaders or self-appointed leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, they ended up getting money for their NGOs. You know, let's be clear, this is what happened. And when you get money, you know, and, the, and the basis on which you, they got that money was to make, uh, to have an understanding with the Democratic Party establishments of various cities so that that was like a that's a way of uh, closing the gates on re the the kinds of victories that could have been won that would have a massive effect. You know what I mean? Like one of the yeah, demands yeah. that was really popular during the movement, which was just something that we uh, socialist alternative didn't invent. We we adopted. Maybe you know our formulation may be somewhat unique, but it was already coming from the rank and file of the movement, which was for an elected. Uh, elected uh, committee, you know, to over, have oversight over the police and what we mean by that. And, and you know, Ryan can talk about this from the Chicago context as well, which is really potent. Uh, what we mean is 
uh, an elected committee of people who are uh, by law are required to take the average worker's wage, as he was saying, they're elected by the voters and they have the power to hire or fire police officers, determine department policies and procedures, and also have subpoena powers. You know, so we're talking about a process, you know, going towards real accountability. I, you know, we can't have illusions that the police department in general is ever going to be on the side of the working class because under capitalism, the role of the police is, you know, is they're part of the state apparatus whose whose goal object main objective is to protect the interests of the state. In other words, the interests of the the most moneyed classes. But the point is, you know, if if BLM, you know, if we see twenty million people really wanting to bring about radical reforms in in policing and that was one of the demands that should have been won but what we saw in city after city was that the self-appointed leadership was them they were they were themselves acting as gatekeepers to the movement and actually the rank and file of the movement are asking themselves you know what's what what happened you know what, how how is it that we marched got tear gas in our eyes and this is what we have to show for ourselves i'll give you a concrete example from seattle and you know ryan was getting towards this because i think it is a crucial um, example of the way BLM leadership played out here. And it's not coincidence. It's a little bit like the Nabisco story in the sense that the reason we saw the some of the betrayals by the uh, so-called leaders of BLM, uh, the reason they were more obvious and potent in Seattle is because their task, uh, you know, from, from the, on behalf of the democratic establishment was to uh, keep us at bay, us meaning the socialist leadership of the BLM movement and uh, uh, one concrete example. There's two really important examples. One of them is when the when the when the movement here were, and everywhere really was being attacked by the police. You know, this is a movement against police brutality, and it was again, brutally being attacked by the police with rubber bullets and and other chemicals and you know like mace and tear gas. At that time, we socialist alternative and my office we brought forward the demand to. Uh, ban the use of such weapons by the Seattle Police Department. This was an incredible thing. Like we got, we got emails from people uh, who were marching for BLM across the country, and many of these they were not all black working people. They were. It was a multiracial movement, after all. It was a multiracial working class movement. But the point is that it was hugely popular in the black community, and we did win it. But you know what? We won it despite the fact that not one of those self-appointed leaders did anything. They didn't lift a finger to help us win. The reason we won was because the rank and file of the movement showed up and responded to our call. You know, when we said, hey, we need we need you to speak and give public testimony in front of the city council, let them understand that there's an entire movement behind this demand, this ordinance, and that if they vote no, they're going to answer to you. That And we had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds speaking up and emailing it. I mean, I've, I've virtually never seen that kind of support even in the 10 years. And that's the reason we won. But, you know, but we, as I said, we won it despite the, uh, the you know, the betrayals come in either overt form or they come by silence from leaderships. And in that sense, in that case, it came through silence of the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement. Another extremely important example, in the same year, in 2020, we were, you know, we had just won our third election in 2019, and then we, uh, one of our campaign slogans was to tax the uh, tax, you know, the, the tax Amazon movement, the Amazon tax to tax big business to fund affordable housing. So we fulfilled that promise. You know, when we 
uh, we launched the tax Amazon movement alongside my swearing in in uh, January of 2020. And then we were in the midst of the tax Amazon movement when COVID happened and the Black Lives Matter movement also broke out. And at that time, when we were still, you know, we were we had a ballot initiative petition uh, and we were collecting signatures for that. We had BLM leaders and their supposed representatives come and tell us that we are not allowed to table, you know, on and collect petition signatures on, uh, on the Amazon tax because apparently that is not a black issue or that's not a BLM issue. And see, that's the kind of gatekeeping that was happening. Where would we have been had Socialist Alternative and my office, you know, agreed to censor ourselves and not put the demand forward? Instead, what we did was we told these, these gatekeepers, and I'm, I'm sorry, that is the only way to describe them. We yeah. said, no, we will go to the rank and file of the movement and they will decide if the Amazon tax for affordable housing is a black issue or not. You know, you were talking about earlier about how you don't see black people in Seattle. You know why? Because the rent is so goddamn high and the poorest and the most working class people, black and white, but disproportionately black, have been pushed out of the city. Where I live, you know, I'm in my house right now. Where I live, it used to be the historically black district. And they, the reason they're pushed out, being pushed out is the skyrocketing prices of housing. And when we so when we boldly tabled in the Black Lives Matter protest, the clip clipboards were almost flying out of our hands. That's how much support we had from the black community because they understood that fighting for the black community means fighting against police brutality and fighting against the corporate landlords and big businesses like Amazon to build affordable housing. And that's the basis on which we collected 30,000 signatures to our petition and we won the Amazon tax. So these are concrete examples that we have to put forward to have a frank discussion about what kind of leadership we need. Well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, get on the Black Lives Matter thing too much because we you know, talked about it ad nauseum on this show and, and not from a positive perspective. Um, I definitely think there's something to be said about spectacle and, and outrage in the way we digest media and the way we kind of see the world at this point. Um, the only way we can actually want to do anything is through severe outrage, right? The, the idea of communal thinking um, is almost uh, gone. Um, and there is a lot about BLM. I think you just summed up in that example of this isn't a quote unquote black issue. I mean, let's go back to, was it 2015 when Bernie Sanders is, is having a speech and the founders of BLM stop him. And that becomes the problem with his campaign. It doesn't center around quote unquote black issues. How does he feel about reparations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I guess the point I'm getting at is it's BLM to me was all about spectacle in the sense of let's have a protest. What's the end goal? Well, we'll have some demands. They don't have to get met. Maybe we'll have demands. Maybe we won't. But we're going to protest. And that feels like where, where a lot of people end yeah. with their quote unquote movement. We threw the cans of soup at a cop. We burned down the police station. We burned up a bunch of people's cars and neighborhoods that we probably don't live in. Um, and that, and that becomes it. And it feels like what you're trying to do is definitely go beyond just the spectacle of quote unquote civil unrest and actually have enough political power 
to be able to move politicians from a local and hopefully to a federal level to cave to the demands of labor? Absolutely, demands are crucial to any kind of successful movement. In fact, that is why it's important to note that Workers Strike Back, the new movement we've launched for you know nationwide for the working class, not just for union members, but for workers and young people who want to fight for a better society. We we have imagine you know, Ryan was mentioning earlier, uh, $25 an hour minimum wage because the cost of living crisis is the most predominant issue that is affecting people's lives. And we also need Medicare for all. We need to fight oppression and discrimination. We've just been talking about some of those points and. We also need the uh, we, we also need good union jobs for all. And at the same time, we uh, you know, this is a crucial part of the, you know, the five demands that we have for workers strike back is no more sellouts and we need a new party because, you know, we can make all the demands that we uh, that we can make. But the strategy to win any of those demands is precisely the way we have done it in Seattle. And, the, the, and that's part of the reason we have won. Because our starting point of our analysis was that, and it was correct, that we cannot rely on the Democratic Party and all the forces that are aligned with them to win any concrete victories. So we need demands. In fact, you, your, your critique is correct that, you know, without demands, it's, it makes the movement really weak. Because at, at the end of the day, some of the best people, the people who are willing to fight, will be turned off and demoralized and even, you know, depoliticized if they don't see the movement concretely fighting for something uh, and uh, alongside that has to go a strategy of how to win those demands and the ABC of that is you cannot you're not going to win if you think that you, you can convince the Democratic Party to be on your side no you're going to force them to concede because they are primarily on the side of the bosses even though of course they have differences from the Republican Party and um, and so uh, we we also recognize that part of the problem, you know, you were talking about, I know we don't dwell on BLM, but this is about movements in general. What we see is that we, there is anger and outrage, and that's a positive thing we, 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 that can be built on to win concrete victories around these demands that are extremely popular. I mean, every demand that I read out is extremely popular. I mean, look at Medicare for all. It is a majority of the American population agrees with it including a majority of Republicans. Uh, and yet there is no way forward for that demand if we uh, confine ourselves to the whole uh, paradigm of well, Democrats and Republicans and then let's con try to convince congressional progressive Democrats. No, we saw what happened with the rail workers. You know, It was a most spectacular betrayal, obviously by the Biden administration, obviously by the Republicans, but who went along for the right and who, who came up with a Trojan horse so sort of, uh, you know, a supposed uh, tactic, but really it was uh, on the side of the railroad bosses. It was a Congressional Progressive Caucus. It was Senator Pramila Jayapal, who is the chair of, a of the 100 strong Progressive Caucus. It was the squad members like the AOC. They sold out railroad workers. And we are seeing how it's playing out. We saw what happened in East Palestine, an entire town ruined with their lives devastated because the railroad billionaires, Warren Buffett being one of them, and also, you know, uh, venture capitalists like uh, financial capitalists like BlackRock and Vanguard, these are absolutely rapacious plunderers of uh, our society. And 
uh, and you know, we this is very much connected with the betrayal of the railroad workers because uh, they were calling for paid sick leave. They were also calling for uh, safe practices, which have been completely uh, abandoned by the railroad bosses. But this is not the only example. Look at what happened with the Dobbs ruling. You know, Roe v. Wade, the uh, right for abortion, that were won by mass movements in the 1970s, have been lost by you know because of this reactionary Supreme Court. But the reason it happened is you know it, it sort of it lies at the door of the Democratic Party and the mass women's organizations that are aligned with them, Planned Parenthood, NARA, Pro-Choice. Now, what did they do? Their one job was to protect abortion rights and they miserably failed. But does that mean young people, young women weren't willing to fight? No, we saw that. Socialist alternative, and you know, it was not just in Seattle, but in cities across the country, including Chicago, where Ryan is, we saw so many young women ready to fight, you know, to do something when the ruling was leaked before it was actually passed. But there was no action, no strategy, no fight back by any of these women's organizations because they are tied at the hip with the Democratic Party. And once you get into the business of not wanting to embarrass your, your you know, establishment cronies, it's all over. So that is why we need accountable leadership. This is what happens in the labor movement as well. The ideas of business unionism, meaning being on the side of the bosses, being on the side of the Democratic Party, trying to carve out internal deals, keeping the rank and file from going um, you know, on protest, let alone on strike. All of this is uh, a barrier to any kind of progress. But what's not a barrier is the consciousness of working class. You know, American consciousness has moved far to the left. People are ready to fight. It's not like they're all on the same page. I agree. I mean, it's not like they're well, all, they all themselves socialists, but they're ready to fight. But well, can we, if we look at, if we look at, I, I just want to, backtrack just real quick as we're, we're wrapping up this first hour and 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 thank you so much for you and ryan taking the time to talk to us and this is not a question aimed just at kashama this is a question for for you and ryan as well and it's just a question i don't have the answer please don't get mad <laughs> um when you think about something like abortion that's a right to privacy that was always iffy when the initial ruling comes down and was it 73 the original lawyers, those two women, there's only one alive now. Even she said, we really need to fight for this to be a right. Because right now we're kind of skating on some thin ice with the, the way we're using this right now as a law, right? And we talked about this on the show before the ruling even came, before the, anything was leaked, we talked about it on the show. And sadly, Real Talk was one of the episodes nobody watched. Because everyone felt like the right to an abortion was sacrosanct, it was pretty much removed almost from the vocabulary of a lot of quote-unquote women's rights movements, unless you were like super hardcore and, and, and all about that, trying to really codify that into law. And it seems to be that the right, the radical right, um, how some people say the word fascist, I'll, I'll, I'll keep from saying fascist. I'll say radical right nationalism, right? We're reacting constantly to whatever radical right is saying, which tend to be more culture war issues. Now it's getting a little bit bigger because the labor issues, people are somewhat quiet about. I mean, I'm living in California, I'm from California, uh, Proposition uh, 20, which really gutted a lot of uh, employee rights 
when it comes to gig work, which is a terrain that I don't really see too many people talking about, but that is an area where so many quote unquote working people are, which is in the gig economy. So how do we get from being reactive in the sense of Roe v. Wade? Because again, that was like 50 years that we've known about the flimsy nature of that ruling. You know, and, and stop reacting to insane right-wing, sometimes, you know, religious fundamentalist nut jobs like you have in places like Texas and the majority of the South. I think, I think when we talk about the abortion question like that, uh, you, you kind of point to kind of like the underlining no more sellouts, we need a new party demand. Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of like the main point is like the Democrats are like, oh, we're going to fight for Roe. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to get Roe back on. Well, you could have codified Roe. For 74. 50 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For 50 years, you could have codified Roe. Obama ran on codifying Roe. And then when he won, I think within nine months, I think it was like he won September of the year. He said it wasn't a priority anymore. And I think it's kind of the you, you kind of seeing the trade off. It, it, it actually, how the Democrats and the Republicans kind of play along with each other. Mm-hmm. Republicans never had full on intent to kind of repeal it. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats had no intent to actually codify. Mm-hmm. And so you have this. I mean, this that's what fuels the, the you know, the evangelistic kind of right wing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is like like when they're upset at the machine Republicans, that's what they're like pointing at. And then on the left, you know, it's like um, it never happens. You know, it's like, you know, it never happens. So like really kind of draws out the failure of the Democratic Party to actually fight for to make this a right. Make take this off the board. No longer have this uh, be a a thing for us to even struggle upon Mm -hmm. so that we can actually you know, and actually the real question is Medicare for all, like, mm-hmm. like that's where it should be. Like Planned Parenthood has no interest in actually making it a right because Planned Parenthood brings in multiple millions of dollars mm-hmm. to, 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 to continue this. But if, if we had Medicare for all with the inclusion of all reproductive, um, uh, uh, reproductive uh, health care yeah. is included in that. What what are the the the, the Westboro Baptist Church? What are they gonna do? They're gonna stand outside the the hospital. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're gonna stand outside the hospital. What are you, what are you who are you gonna yell at? You don't know why she's coming in. She could be coming in for ultrasound. She be coming in for abortion. You don't know. So that that it just repeals it. And then also, if you ever you know you ever have a question about what actually you know, it's not just the right to abortion, but the right to actually be able to raise a child. You know, when when it costs, what is it? I think I read somewhere it was like 18,000 to have a baby um, and to have a child over the course of 18 years, it costs something like 200,000. And, you know, when we're talking about women um, raising a child for a single parent is like not women just alone, but raising a child for a single parent is like two point five jobs. And they're also expected to have a single job to pay for their, you know. Like this, it's just a wider question. 
And it draws out the need for an actual, uh, 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 an attack on capitalism. And I think that's, I mean, at the core, that's what it is. And I think, I agree. you know, to circle back to worker strike back, mm-hmm. you, you like, when we when you talk about fighting racism, sexism, and all oppression as it's related to the role of workers, uh, you know, like that's directly a part of it. My favorite demand, favorite favorite de- demand is the four day work week. We just posted an article on that. Second favorite demand is comprehensive twenty four seven child care, and that's because you know I think people who have children. Should be able to, and it, it comprehensive is key. Not just like some shitty, yeah, uh, childcare, but like yeah. comprehensive quality childcare that a person who already can afford a nanny at home can, would be willing to drop their child out there. Comprehensive, hmm. um, you know that type of thing, twenty four seven. But it's 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 somewhat selfish because also, what do we do with that free time? And your ability to be able to drop off your child at a comprehensive childcare 24 7 a day, you can fight for more. You can fight for better living um, conditions. You can fight for the union jobs, the difficult union jobs, and hyper. And, and what do we see mostly under attack since the surgence of labor struggles since 2020? Nurses and teachers, highly, uh, you know, uh, very, very women centric jobs, not specific to women, but very, very women-centered job are under attack. And who who do we see the most have to leave the the job? Um, not just you less so in unions, but just in general, women, because they had to be home with the children while while the kids were you know at home for school. Where where do we see the most um, mental health crises um, in relations to COVID? Women. It's just common, you know, I, you know, I, I, maybe not common sense. It just makes sense for, uh, for this struggle mm-hmm. to be tied, you know, a, a struggle against oppression has to be tied to any kind of worker struggle and vice versa. Because like, like I said at the beginning, any, any, um, the only person that benefits from um, oppression is the bosses and their, and, and, you know, and their political parties. Well, and and just, just, right if I, if I can just add quickly to what Ryan was saying. I mean, all those demands that he laid out, I, I absolutely, I, I love the Ore work week, by the way. I love that uh, as well that Ryan was saying. But the point is, you know, in answer to your question, uh, the, the way to fight the right, you know, is not to be on the defensive, is to go on the offensive. And that is why these demands are important. All the demands that Ryan laid out and the ones that I was talking about earlier about why Workers Strike Back is bringing forward these demands is precisely because we need to have an offense, we need to wage an offensive fight to defeat the right. That is the only way to defeat the right. We are not going to be able to do it if we are always playing defense. However, it's important to understand what does it take to win offensive victories? You know, any of the demands that Ryan laid out, you know, whether it is uh, paid parental leave or uh, child care, any of those, uh, let alone Medicare for all, how are we going to win? What is the starting point? The starting point is to understand that the Democratic Party is not on your side. And this strategy of trying to make, uh, uh, trying to be at peace with the political establishment and trying to win something meaningful, that hasn't worked. In fact, 
the, re the pre precise reason why right populism has been on the rise, why Trump got elected in the first place is because the, neither of the two big business parties support any working class agenda. And, and in 2016, once Bernie Sanders was out, then you had uh, a real demoralization of a whole section of people who were supporting the, you know, the fighting program, $15 an hour, taxing big business, ending student debt. People who otherwise would have voted for a right-wing candidate were supporting Trump. And if Bernie Sanders was the candidate, there was every chance that he would have won. But that didn't happen because the Democratic Party is not a party of the working class. So they completely uh, crushed his attempt to become the Democratic Party nominee. And then the next thing you know, Trump had won the election. Trump didn't win because people, uh, you know, because people are, are, are in general willy-nilly turning to the right or becoming right wing. That's not true. Actually, if you look at poll after poll on concrete issues, the mm -hmm. consciousness is to the left, not to the right today compared to 20, 30 years ago. But what happened was that in the absence of a, of a genuine working class candidate in the general election, you had Trump, who's a con man, who's a liar, who he posed as somebody who's outside the establishment, even though he really isn't. And then uh, you, you, you know, and, and there was the, the, the two options were Hillary Clinton, the known corporate quantity. And then you had Trump who posed as an outsider. That's not a real choice. And the only way to defeat this right uh, rise of right populism is to understand that the Democratic Party has sold us out. That is the reason that the right wing has gained any echo, because they're occupying the vacuum that the left should be occupying. Is it my, my co-host, sadly, is having issues with his with his Wi-Fi and his video, uh, sadly. And I think he'll have hopefully he'll have it fixed by the time we get in the champagne room. And there's a there's a phrase. There's a saying that he always has that we've definitely adopted on this show is that we don't have a left in this country. We have leftists. And the Democratic Party has never really represented the left. If anything, it's the left flank of capital. Um, so would you say that they're kind of acting accordingly or are they selling people out? Oh, no, I was, I was just asking that question. Did you hear me? Yes, I was just asking Ryan if you want to do. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, sure. I'm, I, I mean, I think, yeah, they're acting accordingly. They are, you know. Because I, I, I just I just asked that question because I, I think they are the left flank of, of capital. And I think I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call them left flank of capital because no. there is no left for, you know, <laughs> if you're supporting capital, you are on the side of the capitalist class and you can't be called left. But yeah, I will agree uh, that they're they, a nicer, they're a nicer form of capital. They're the, they, they're the racial. They're not nice. They are not, there's nothing nice about the Democratic Party. But what they do do is uh, they they want to, it, it's it's like, it's a little bit like Noam Chomsky says, you know, there's, there's uh, in order to keep working people in check, you know, to keep them from rising up and demanding something real shift mm -hmm. in society, towards their standards of living, towards their needs, as opposed to the greed of the billionaire class where they've become trillions of dollars richer and we have become trillions of dollars poorer because it's a capitalism, a zero-sum game. But in order to keep the working class in check in its misery, you have the ruling class has to give the illusion of debate. That's mm -hmm. what they accomplish by having the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Yeah. Are there actual differences? Sure. You know, there, there, I would also concede that there are some well-meaning people in the Democratic Party. I've seen one or two well-meaning city council members, 
But the point mm -hmm. is that as long as they are tied to the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. as long as their priority is to not embarrass any of the Democratic politicians or the Democratic Party as a whole, they are going to fail the working class. So this is not a test of intentions. Although I will say that it is too little. Good intention is too not, not very much available in the Democratic Party. Let's not exaggerate that point. But mm -hmm. let's leave that aside for a second and also understand that all the good intentions of the world are not going to stand up for the working class if you don't understand that you have to have the will to fight. And that requires you building movements of working people and exposing those who are selling out at the top. You know, And once you, once you start doing that, you become public enemy number one to the Democratic right. Party. So unless, unless you understand that that's what it takes and you're willing to engage that, you are not the right kind of leader. And that is why rather than uh, look at it from individual standpoint, individual leaders, worker strike back has the, um, has the demand that we need a new party that's accountable to the working class because we recognize that if we, need, we need a rank and file movement through which we can have a party in which the rank and file can hold leaders accountable. Well, that is that fiery speech that you just heard is from Shama Swant. She brought Ryan Watson, who's the head of all black people in Chicago, <laughs> only on the south side. If you live on the east side or the north side, I'm actually on the west side. Well, you why are you running people on the south side, Ryan? It's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> leave them leave them be you don't even live there you just bully. <laughs> but i was gonna say you guys totally killed it and knocked it out of the park so here it comes i feel like a jordan meme sound would have made <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are gonna be joining us in the champagne room Sure. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Warning you now. We curse a lot more in the champagne room. And because you brought Ryan, we're probably going to say the N word a lot. Nigga, what? Just a little bit. <laughs> early. Too early. Entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Thank you guys for watching the show. If you guys want to be part of the call-in, we're going to set up the phone lines. You guys can call in and ask Ryan, and Shama, and Pascal should be back. Questions. I know Pascal has like 15 things he wanted to ask you. He had all these questions. And he's having Wi-Fi issues. We're going to fix all of that. We'll see you in the champagne room. Mm -hmm. And we are out.